I mean, that's the question we've got to ask, isn't it? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Well, you look, I, I, look, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't, we've got some guests. We've got people watching on live stream or YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Look, I don't know where you are. But this is a community that's built around one singular idea that we would consider a fact that, in fact, he is worthy. He's not a malevolent, unknowable, divine entity, some power, some, some, some just force out in the universe. He's knowable. And again, we were created in his image. So we're going to launch into Ephesians chapter 2. This, this move through the book of Ephesians, I hope, is going to grab you in some very interesting ways. I had a call this last week, and somebody called me, and we of dear parts of the Church at the Red Door, and and uh, they just said, we're stuck on this thing, this predestination thing, and we don't know how to, how to operate. And I said, well, if you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> how, does it, how, do you, how do you make sense of the fact that we were chosen? I mean, this first chapter gave us some essentials here. Number one, you've been chosen before the foundations of that nebula we just looked at. Chosen in him to be adopted. That should blow your mind. Secondly, it was God's grace reaching out to you to redeem you. That's what we got in Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, these are core theological foundations, core moorings for your faith. A lot of people, they kind of have Christianity and they have a, it's a kind of a, a hybrid. They have a little bit of self-help in there and they kind of helped them through their marriage and they think of it kind of as a self-help kind of a thing. No, no, no. You need these kinds of understandings about the God that we serve so that you can serve him in a way that is representative of the church, at least as Jesus saw it coming. Jesus saw it coming. So you were adopted. <clears throat> and we learned last week that we've got an unbelievable inheritance. Not only now, a down payment of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, but we have a future inheritance that's so powerful, so profound, that words cannot describe. I hasn't seen nor ear heard all the things that God has planned for, for his church, for those who love him and follow him and are saved by the power of his blood. I mean, that's unbelievable. And then now, lastly, where we just finished here, Jesus now rules and reigns. He's now at the right hand of the Father, not to be some day in the future, but he now is over all the created order. He already is. He could come back at any moment. Bible's clear. Jesus could come back at any moment. But for whatever reason, there are still those who don't know him that have been chosen before the foundations of the earth. And they will be also brought into this glorious church that will live and rule and reign with him forever and ever. It's not done yet. Our task is not done. And until Jesus comes back, our work's not finished as the church. Tom Brady, they talk about all the time. You know, I, I have, I told you last year, I have patriot fatigue. I'm sorry if you're from that area of the country. But it's just every year, okay, they're finally, he's too old, he's too, you know, he's in his 40s now, and he's the, they call him the GOAT. Tom Brady is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Ephesians 1 says, mm, not so much. Jesus is, he was the lamb and he is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. He will always be the greatest of all time. He is who we serve. He's who we worship. We are a worshiping community. We're not just uh, you know, uh, theological, and that can be dry, and that can be bone dry. 
just a bunch of theology. No, it's a living, vibrant organism. I saw something this week. The largest organism on the on the earth today, living organism, are these aspen trees, and they are interconnected with their root systems, and sometimes they're extraordinarily large, and, and I saw, and I think it was in Utah somewhere, that where this is the largest, and it's actually dying right now. Are we going to be a living organism in Christ that's dying, or are we going to be thriving and growing and adding people to recognize that Jesus is the GOAT? He is the greatest of all time. That's what Ephesians told us. Now we're going to push on into Ephesians 2. There's a couple things we need to know. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Romans. And we need to set some foundation here. And it's going to be tough. I'll just tell you straight up, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. These first 10 verses, I'm going to jump ahead, guys. We're going to look at Romans 5, and then we'll come back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5. And I want you to go to verse 6, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. This is hard to deal with. This is really difficult to deal with because we start out Ephesians 2 with that you were dead. Now this is assuming he's writing to those that have now been filled with God's very presence, the Holy Spirit. But this was your situation, you were dead. And he, he understands this, and he goes into the in more depth in Romans chapter 5. So before we read Ephesians 2, I just want you to have this in your mind as to what Paul had told the church in Rome. Listen to what he says. Romans chapter 5, start here in verse 6. For while we were helpless, now get, we're gonna, think about these words, helpless, before the Holy Spirit came and dwelled in you by faith in Jesus, before that happened, you were, spiritually speaking, helpless. It's the, if you remember from a few weeks ago, it's my two guys that were down here, dead, on the ground, helpless. You were helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So not only were you helpless, you were ungodly. Defines my life pretty well, pretty pre-Jesus. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Helpless, ungodly sinners. That's what we've got so far. Having a good day so far? Right. It says, much more than having been now justified by his blood. That's the redemption part. We'll always talk about it in here. It's the very core of the gospel. He says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I did a whole three weeks on wrath. How much more shall we be saved by his life? And not only this, but we also exult in God through Jesus, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Can you imagine that? And it goes on to say we were enemies, enemies of God. So what Paul's telling the Romans is that you were helpless, ungodly, sinning enemies. Now, one of the things that can happen very easily is the syncretism that can happen in the context of the gospel over 2,000 years, and then we threw it into the hands of a bunch of Gentiles, and Gentiles have kind of struggled with it at various points. We have a lot of different denominations or a lot of different thoughts. And all of a sudden, it can be merged. This was happening in the first 50 years of the church. I mean, Paul was constantly having to face this 
syncretism between the way they thought about reality or spirituality or all those kinds of things and then just kind of merging it with some of their platonic thought or other things that we've talked about in here. And so it's easy all of a sudden to get a hybrid and you miss going back to the cross, the epicenter of the event that has reconciled God to man. And that's always at the center of what the Church of the Red Door here. But when you're dealing with the cross, you have to deal with, well, why the cross? Well, because we were what? Helpless, ungodly, sinning enemies, regardless of what we thought about ourselves. I mean, I meet a lot of people. I'm very spiritual. Or I have a relationship with that divine power or something, but not through Jesus. And then we come to true biblical Christianity, and it seems to narrow it, and it offends us. It offends me. Why can't God just kind of love all of his children? Why, did not, why do all paths not lead to God? Why? Why was Jesus so narrow? Why did he say narrow is the way to life and broad is the way that leads to destruction? I mean, there aren't many. I mean, there is a new atheist kind of movement today where they, it's a complete rejection. I mean, we've talked a lot about Stephen Hawking. I'm going to actually do a whole sermon on Stephen Hawking and a response by John Lennox, one of the great uh, mathematicians on the planet in response to Hawking, but Haw- Hawking's now is that they're about to publish his book, a compilation of some of the works that he never published before he died, and he comes to the very stark conclusion that there clearly is no God. Now, it's one thing to say, I'm not sure if there's a God, I, I, you know, I, I, it doesn't resonate with me that there's not, a, but to say there is no God, I mean, is a pretty extraordinary statement considering we are one of two trillion galaxies, and we don't even know how many planets how many stars are in our own galaxy? I mean, we, we can't even figure out the Milky Way. And we're going we're gonna to posit that all the way throughout all of creation, there is no God. That takes some extraordinary... Well, I won't go there, but you get the point. So, as I was thinking about this, how, how would it help me to remember? This is how, by the way, I'm giving you a trick of how I remember things. I try to create an acronym of some sort. Helpless, ungodly, sinning enemy. And that's either Huss or Hussy or Hus. And I liked Hussy, but Hussy is, is spelled H-U-S-S-Y. And that is an immoral woman. Not too dissimilar from Gomer, who was representative of Israel, who was constantly running. And she was married to Hosea, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. But Gomer was always straying, and, 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 and God was speaking through the prophet Hosea in this letter and saying... But we're the same way. We're the, Israel, you're constantly strained from me. You're like an immoral woman. Now you say, well, you shouldn't use that language in church. Well, we can't read the Bible then. If you're a King James Version person, it calls Gomer a whore. It's someone who's unfaithful to their husband. And we know often through the scriptures that the church is the bride of Christ. So if we're strained, and I'm not saying about this but in senses, we're a hussy, we're, we're helpless, we're ungodly, pre-Jesus, pre-marriage, we're, we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies. Now, it's one thing to be a sinner and say, okay, I'm a sinner. I recognize some deficits in my own character. It's a whole nother step to say, I'm an enemy of God. When Jesus did that, and we'll see this in a minute in, John, in, in, in weeks to come, when Jesus did that in John chapter 8, boy, they, they tried to stone him because he was talking about the religious leaders. Can you remember Hussey misspelled? This is the best I could come up with. I knew it was going to be weak, but it's all I could come up with. So is that true? Well, let's go back now to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's read the first 10 verses. But before we do, let me just say these first 10 verses are a summary 
and an explanation of all the blessings that were seen in the first chapter of Ephesians. Speaking to the church, inheritance, adoption, part of the family. I mean, and it's just unbelievable, all these blessings, these spiritual blessings that we saw there in verse 3 of chapter 1. These spiritual blessings are made possible because this had laid a foundation to you now understanding the blessings. So, look, you can't just read Ephesians chapter 1 and see all the blessings and then say, well, we just all received the blessings. Well, this has to be true. You have to have come to grips with 1 through 10. And to be honest with you, the first 10 verses here of chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 that we're about to read, really give you kind of a quick summary of what Paul really breaks out in Romans' first eight chapters of Romans. I mean, it's really salvation and understanding salvation and, and what it is and what it's, and what it's not. And now we get a summation of this in 10 verses. So again, these first 10 verses will give you the foundation for why we walk in such spiritual blessing. So are you ready? Let's read. Let's read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Formerly walked according to the course of this world some maybe niv i'm not sure but some say the natural course of this world in other words just the just the way the world operates we can see it it's not hard to see you walk outside these doors and you walk out into the world doesn't take you long and all of a sudden you can just it's like a frog in in boiling water that's not boiling yet you just keep turning up the temperature and all of a sudden you don't even realize that i'm part of the problem And what he's saying is that, you know, you were part of the problem. You walked according to the natural course of this world. According to, and we'll get more into this as we get later in Ephesians. I I was going to spend some time on this. The prince of the power of the air. What in the world is that? Well, that's Satan. And that's the demonic forces then behind him. But the primary centerpiece here that's being viewed here by Paul is the prince of the power of the air. It's interesting, the language, the power of the air. The air, the sky, just the vibe, the aura, the, the sense, the atmosphere, if you will, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Look, just people who are enemies of God. Now, they may not call themselves enemies. They may call themselves friends of God. But if they reject the resurrection of Jesus, then there can be no impartation of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And as a result of that, you are still alienated from God. You're hostile to God, even though you may feel that you're close to God. You say, well, that's too narrow. Who are you to tell me? Well, I'm nobody to tell you that. I am a nobody. You shouldn't care anything about what I might say. The question is, what does this say? What did Jesus say about reality? And then if, you, if you're going to push all your chips in on somebody else or somebody else's interpretive view, please tell me it's somebody that's conquered death. And not just an expert. Please tell me that you've bought into somebody that's conquered death. So it says, look, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. I'm sorry for the language. Lust just means deep-seated desire, passion. I want that. That's what this means. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now there's a there's a line of demarcation here. The, I think the sins of the flesh are just our natural desire for 
eating too much, for sex, for th- those are just the natural desires of the flesh. The mind takes something else. The mind you have to conceive. I don't think our flesh in and of itself just longs for power and all those other things. I think it takes the coordination of the mind to think about, well, I'm tired of this, I want that, and then you conceive of things. So it's our mind, how our mind operates, our rational, volitional thought about how we think about reality. So you put those things together and it says that's what you were living in. You, you were being drugged around as a slave, and that's what the Bible says. We were slaves of sin. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, God's wrath is upon those who don't have his presence dwelling in them. That's why the gospel is such incredible news. Do you want to escape God's wrath? Just have his presence in you. Believe into Jesus. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's Bible. That's straight out of the words. Why? Saved from his wrath. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, not of works, not as a result of works at all, so that nobody can go around bragging about their spiritual lives. Can't boast in the gospel. We just found out. How were you before when you were dead? Helpless, ungodly, sinning enemies of Christ. And he saved me. Now let me brag about my works. It just doesn't fit. Oh, we may work gloriously towards the end that he becomes famous in the earth, but we don't brag about it. There's no reason to brag about it. We got nothing to brag about except for him. If I'm going to boast, Paul says, I'm going to boast in what he's accomplished in me. It's him, which makes for a beautifully humble community. Boy, if you get arrogance in the church... It's horrible to let that creep into the church where there's arrogance in any place, especially among leadership. It can't be. They don't understand the gospel. Somehow they're missing the point. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So not only he, he chose you before the foundations, but he's prepared certain, for th- for certain things for you to walk into in your life. Now, that's where we're going to go over the next few weeks. Today, we're just going to pick up the first part of that. You were dead. I think the uh, German word is kaput. <laughs> you were kaput. I, you know, I, you see, I'm offended by that. Maybe, maybe you're watching this or something, and you, you, you're still of the, the idea that somehow all paths, all people are, you know, have the divine with them, in them and all this, and this is offensive to you. It should be offensive. In fact, the Bible, the prophets had seen that Jesus was going to be a rock of offense. Of course you should be offended. It's offensive to me, but then you turn around and walk away after having given the diatribe towards someone who told you that, or quoted Jesus, or Paul, or Peter, and you turn around and walk away, and you may have just demonstrated some real anger, but deep down you go, but it's true. I feel myself raging against God. 
I feel it. See, there's both an internal and an external thing that happens. Before Jesus came, before you, forget not before Jesus came, before Jesus came into you through the Holy Spirit, you didn't have the ability to govern. You just acted. We'll see, as Peter says, it was like an unreasoning animal. You're not an animal. You're created in his image, but you were driven by what you wanted. You just, I want that, I'm going to get it. And that can even be religion, by the way. You know, I want that, I'm going to get it. And you just went after it with all your passion. Well, listen to what Grant Osborne says. I love him, and I've alluded to him before, but I love what Grant says um, about this idea of internal and external. And I lost my place here, but I'm coming. Uh, Internal and external, how this operates. And it's powerful. It's very powerful. And, uh, And if it was in here, which I think it is, it's even more powerful if I could find it to read it. Uh, put it in here. Okay, here it is. Somehow my thing fell out. Listen to this. Catch this. He said, sin is no longer for us who are now followers of Jesus, an internal force controlling us. Let me, let me say that again. When this is talking about being dead, spiritually dead, you had, the Bible says that you had an internal force that was driving you and you were helpless against its onslaught. Are you with me? He said, but an external force trying to invade us and appealing to our fleshly tendencies. Unbelievers are internally controlled by these cravings. Christians are externally tempted by them. See, once you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, you're still going to be tempted. And you're going to fail at times. But that is an external temptation with which you had the power to overcome. But through your choosing, and I, look, I understand, this is hard, I, I, I've had, especially where there's habitual sin. And I've had areas of my life where there was habitual sin and I hated it and I wanted. But in the end, rather than saying, oh, the devil made me do it and just do a Flip Wilson kind of thing. I had to finally come to terms with, you know, at the end of the day, I had to make a choice. I had the power residing on the inside of me now as a follower of Jesus to to push away from that temptation. Now, before, when I was dead, I didn't have the resources. I was internally driven. And I think that's accurate and, and a clear orthodox understanding of what happens and what it means to be dead spiritually. Or made alive and, and seated with him in the heavenlies. Okay, that must mean we're sinless. No, that's not going to happen until he comes back and we see him as he is and we get a new body and all that. And we have a resurrected body that's not, you know, tainted by sin. That won't happen until one day. But for now, with Jesus, we do. And it, it, may, be a, it may be a battle. And it will be a battle. It can be an everyday battle. Some of you are out there with some addiction issues in your life. And it's a battle, but you have the resources in Christ now internally. Before you didn't, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Being spiritually dead just simply means that we are alienated. We're separated. Think of it as an umbilical cord. Think of it as, a, as the guy, and, and Laura, and I'm sure it's a great movie, but we're just like, why is this movie, because it got all these great reviews, I don't even know what it's called, the, the recent one where the... Um, the, guy, the space movies, it's just like we've seen enough space movies. It feels like the mo- going to the moon and coming back movies are just so many out there. But it's kind of like when you get out there 
and, and they get away and they drift away from the, and all of a sudden, one thing you don't want to break is what? Your, your line back to mothership. And then you can see that. I remember whatever that one was with George Clooney, and he, he kind of drifted off. He cut, he cut his tie, and he drifted off, and, of course, he died. He, would, he was physically dead because he was cut off from the mothership of sorts. You want that lifeline or that umbilical cord for a child while forming in the womb. Whatever language you want to use, that's what happens. You were separated and alienated. You had no lifeline to the Father. And through Christ, he plugs you back into mothership, and now your spirit comes alive. You were dead. You weren't physically dead. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, and you didn't have the, you didn't have the internal equipment to fight against it. You did not have the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. So what do we do? I, I, we just have to get the depths of our separation from God both in describing the gospel to people if you already know Jesus, or if you don't know Jesus yet, your understanding of who you are, according to the Bible. You were dead. Or, if you don't know Jesus, you are dead. You are helpless, ungodly enemies of Christ. I'm offended by it. Well, I know. But listen to what this says. Tell me this doesn't resonate. Here's what I think we are. I think we're hiders. We're blamers. Unfortunately, we're ignorant of God's things and his ways. We're blind to the spiritual realm. And believe it or not, the Bible even says we're like the beasts of the field. We're created in his image, but we're acting like animals. You know, the whole push today in modern, you know, the whole unpacking, not only sociologically, anthropologically, there's a push towards saying we're just animals. We're just animals. We're a slightly more evolved animal. And they, and they say, well, that's true because, and they will go down and show you have feet and they have feet or you have hands or they, or they react to this and you react to that. Their brain's similar to ours. Of course, we see similarities in creation. But the difference between humans and animals is very clear. They work by instinct, number one, and two, catch this, two, they were not created in God's image. That's important to understand. We are called to reflect back to God himself. Image bearers is what we are in Christ. Outside of Christ, we don't. We look, again, like the beasts of the field. We act like the beasts of the field. I feel it. I need it. I want it. I've told you about our new dog, BB. You know, I'm sorry, but Tatum brought, Tatum brings home all the animals because she works at an animal hospital. So we have an ongoing thing of animals that were, I don't know, what going to the chambers or something. I don't know where they were going. But now they live in our kitchens and in our bedrooms and in our closets and everywhere. So BB, I love BB. You know, we all love BB. She's, she's a big hound. She's like, she, if you ever saw the Beverly Hillbillies, she was the dog on the Beverly Hillbillies. Now, mom, the younger kid, they won't get that. But if you knew, that was that old hound, the big long ears and and she lives in the kitchen because we can't let her around. But that's the worst place she can be. She weighs 80 pounds. And so Tatum tells us, don't feed BB. Whatever you do, don't feed BB. And, of course, everybody comes in. And I see him. And we see each other secretly, you know, because you got to. Because she, she just follows you around the kitchen everywhere she goes in this long snout. And she sniffs around. And then she's like, and finally, you're like, all right, B, don't tell anybody that I did this. And he did that. And three minutes later, somebody else comes to the kitchen. You exit. All right, B.B., don't tell anybody. And I actually caught my wife. I'm in big trouble for this, but I caught my wife 
giving her whipped cream the other day. And the only reason I knew it is I was walking out of the kitchen. I heard, I know that sound. I know that sound. What? And then I saw, anyway, so BB, you think when she's with you, she loves me so much. And I told the girls the other day, I said, I am absolutely convinced of this. If a resurrected Popot, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, all of them came back in and walked in and you were there having nurtured her and given her a place to live and saved her from the, from the chambers. If those guys walked in and they had a little chicken pot pie, <laughs> like an instinct, that dog is on those people. Now, you say, well, that's just an animal. That's the way animals are. Exactly. And that's what he's saying. That's the way some of you were or you're no longer been. Genesis 3, verse 8. We hide. We hide from God. That's how this whole thing started. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day after the fall. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And among the trees of the garden. See, if... When we're living in sin and we're disconnected, of course people are going to run from God. Of course you're going to go out into culture and people say, I don't even believe in that God. How can you believe in that nonsense fairy tale stuff? I can't even believe you believe in that kind of stuff. I mean, this 21st century man, intellectually with their mind, they're running from God. The Bible's clear. We all have an intuitive sense that there's something out there. Now that may not lead us all the way to Jesus right off the bat, but we all have just, it's called the, the, the... uh, the example of ministry, the witness of, uh, excuse me, the witness of nature. The witness of nature, we look at that, nebulous and all that, and we say, just chance and out of nothing and, and really nothing. I don't care who you are. You've got to go to bed at night and you go, there's something out there. But then you reject that, God. Then you run and hide. We're hiders. Then we blame everybody but us. And some of you, especially, you know, you it's, it so permeates our culture. It's the victim mentality. And it's not empowering. It's disempowering. When you're always playing the victim, always the victim, but it's human nature. If something's going wrong in my life, I'll sue. It's my parents. It's something. Some, we never want to say, I have made choices that have led me here. Now, look, I know some of you have some horrific backgrounds. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I am not discounting the power of nature over nurture. I'm not discounting that at all, but I will tell you at the end of the day, we are culpable. And because we are, we feel it, we feel the moral imperative in us, and what do we do? We blame everybody else, and that's exactly what they did. Genesis 3, verse 12. Listen to what they immediately did. And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate it. And so he turns to the woman. And what does God then say to the woman? Look, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And she said, The serpent deceived me. The serpent that you allowed to be in this garden. Do you realize at the very core of this, we're blaming God? You hear that in Adam and Eve? The woman who you gave me. I was doing fine down here by myself. 
I enjoyed being a bachelor. We were having a good time. Some of the animals we were having, we got, got a few, you know. It was, everything was going fine. And he put her in here, down here. It's her that led me to, to, the, to sin. All right, woman, what is it? Well, it was the, it was the serpent you allowed. How, did you, how can you allow that serpent to be in this garden? Ultimately, all of our blame shifting is a finger pointed back to our creator. It is. Dead people can't make sense of this at all. They just can't. They just can't. They want to blame it on everybody. James saw, James saw this. He knew that would be blame shifting. James chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't say that. For God can't be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. He tests us. So we don't have time to get into the difference between the two. But testing and tempting are two different, very different things. God's not tempting us with anything. Well, what happens? Well, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by what? His own I got to have that. I, got, I need that. Why? But deep down, we're empty. We're separated from God. And so we try to fill the void, and we say, I got to have that. If I have that, then I'll be happy. If I have that, then I'll be happy. If I have, uh, if I have a, another house, I'll be happy. If I have a, another nicer, bigger, faster, more caring husband, more understanding wife, if I, I, I have, you know, at the end, we talk about lust and sin. And it all, all of that is just one thing. We're unhappy, we're miserable, and we're trying to make ourselves happy and content. That's all lust really means. And when we go after everything, irrespective of what God said will do us good and what will do us bad, harm, then we get angry at God. And then we run into a, a, a fallen world where everybody's after their own desire. And then we say, why is God allowed suffering? See, we still blame God. Blame God. That's always at the core of it. I won't believe in your God because what about all the suffering on the earth? Really? Is that what it is? It's just a finger point back at God. God's demonstrated his love to us that while we were yet helpless ungodly sinners who were his enemies and finger pointing back at him, he says, I'm still going to die for him. So rather than just having one little meteorite come out, which would have would have been as easy as just, okay, meteorite, redirect, and wipe this little earth off, just one catastrophic explosion, one apocalypse, and I'll just wipe my hands of these human beings, and I'll start over again. Rather than that, I'll condescend. I'll become like them. I'll become a man, and I'll go, and I myself will die, and I will appease my own sense of justice. And then we still, bl- we still blame God for that? What kind of lunatics are we, human beings? I'm describing me. Before I knew him. So what do we do? When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, 
it always brings forth death. That's what James is saying here. Don't blame God. Don't point your finger at God. Dead people also, they can't make sense of this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We just don't get it. Dead people can't make sense of what we're saying. These words to some will be like, wah, 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 wah. Charlie Brown. I always want to know what the teacher said, but I couldn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me. It's like another language. It is. It's a spiritual language. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. A natural man, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand it because why? They're spiritually appraised. Do we get that in our soul? Verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who will instruct him? Now catch this. But we, those who believed into Jesus, have the mind of Christ. Is this resonating with you? Will you walk out of here differently in some way today? Because the, the mind of Christ is being nurtured here? Or is this foolishness to you? Like, like I'm just up here, just a crazy lunatic up here. Look, I know some people and I have plenty. You're a lunatic. I've had that plenty of times. Your propaganda, your nonsense. I had a woman so angry with me after I did a memorial service one time. I, she was spitting, angry, just so hostile. And yet she considered herself very spiritual. She, was, she led a spiritual movement. She was so angry at me. It was foolishness to her. And we're blind. We were blind. How does that happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because they're helpless. They're enemies of God. In whose case the God of this world, that's the prince of the power of the air, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He's a perfect reflection of God the Father. You, know, you want to know the power that created all this? Look at Jesus. You want know God's like? Look at Jesus. Don't look at Christianity as a whole. Because you're going to see all kinds of nonsense parading as Christianity. You always will. It's always going to be the case. Look at Jesus. You want know what God's like? Look at Jesus. It's not complicated. He is the image of the invisible one. Just not being able to see. They just can't see it. They're veiled. So, quick plug for November 11th. I think we're getting pretty close to filling it up. We only have room for 200. The, the Field of Dreams thing. You know, why, is, why are we doing that? Kind of a new agey looking thing. It's just an analog for the spiritual life. Is we're going to stop the movie three or four times. And I'm going to do a little three, four, five-minute commentary as we go along. And so we're going to see it as a spiritual parallel. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's going to be fun. Plus, we're going to hang out and we'll be at the Mary Pickford. We're going to do that. Here's a little clip that shows the blindness of what people cannot see. And they get offended when they can't see it. Let's watch. Ray? 
um, Mom and everybody's leaving now. Okay. Well, it was, uh, you know, thanks for coming. Ray, think about what I said. You know, I'm just trying to help. I know. So I thought you two were going to watch some game. Because <laughs> it's not really a game. It's more like a practice. See, there's only eight of them, so they can't play a real game. Eight of what? Them. Who them? Them, them. Well, you don't see them? Karen, honey, uh, what are you watching? The baseball man. Baseball? Do you see the baseball man right now? Of course I do. But you, you really don't see him? I don't think it's very polite to try to make other people feel stupid. Mom, wait, wait a minute. Mom, wait a minute. Dee, Dee, wait. You don't see these people? It's not funny, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, as a sidebar, if you you got to understand, if you've got somebody that's rejected Jesus in your life, sometimes you say, yeah, I've worked on him, I've worked on him, I've worked on him. You got to realize God's put you there. There's no question that God's put you there, but it also gives you a deeper sense of empathy. I mean, you also empathize with them. You're like, come on, they can't see it, but they, that's the point. They can't see it. There was a day when I couldn't see it. And I'm thankful somebody was willing to come down into the trenches with me and, and, and risk some of my own scorn to hang in there and share Jesus until God sovereignly moved in their life. And then all of a sudden they can see it. It's powerful. Romans 5 verse 12. The spiritual malaise, this is all inherited from Adam. And this is called original sin. And this gets very complex. This should not be, let me just say, some things I'll, I'll give credence to both sides and I'll, uh, there should be no real challenge from theologians on this. It's inherited sin. It came down. You know, we, babies, I don't care how beautiful and wonderful and fantastic they are, it's not just nature that forms them and makes them into helpless, ungodly, sinning enemies of God. They're born with a fallen nature. Paul can't be more clear. In my view, that's my view, Romans 5 verse 12, therefore just as though one man, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's not just physical death, it's also spiritual death. It's like a malaise, it's blindedness, it's it's helplessness. It's helplessness. Okay, so in closing here, the dead pursue a life that's just natural to them. It's what we talked about a minute ago. They see and want something, and then they pursue it. They just have to have it. Peter likens many of the false prophets to these creatures of instinct, uh, unreasoning animals. Again, offending uh, certainly those offended who were the spiritual gurus of his day. 
but they're false prophets. Many of them false prophets. It's an indication of their separation from their creator. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we'll close down with these two thoughts. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. These like unreasoning animals, speaking of the false prophets, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And then verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. You know, part of being dead is being enslaved. So what Peter's trying to communicate here is that these are guys masquerading as spiritual people, but in the end, they're still just dead set on their own passions. Have you ever seen that in religion? Do you think religion's ever been used to pursue ungodly passions? Over the last, forget 2,000 years, you can go back as far as you want in human history. Religion will always be a power play that men and women use to gain power, influence, and control so that they might fulfill their own passions and desires. I mean, religion will always be that. So don't, re- don't distance yourself from religion as a whole because, well, they're all, it's all a bunch of hypocrisy. Much of it is. The challenge is, even as a follower of Jesus, we realize that through the sanctification process, there are still elements in me that are hypocritical. And that's the loving Father who takes his time and is patient with me. And sanctifies me day by day through the Holy Spirit. I am not the man I will be in five years. But today stands a man in front of you that is not the same man he was five years ago. It is a progressive process. I'm saved in a moment. I'm right with God in a moment. I'm justified. That's called justification. But it is a lifetime of realizing the the old hidden hypocrisy that still resides within me. And killing, through the power of the Holy Spirit, those desires that will not only hurt me in the long run and ministry, and we all have a ministry if you're a follower of Jesus, but also those around me will suffer for it. So that's why we come as a humble community, because we are all in need of a hospital. But having said that, we are a reflection of God's glory still. And that's a paradox. It's just challenging. So in closing, look, there are just two general things. Dead people tend to miss it on one side or the other. It's either a a much too high view of themselves, their rational ability, their skills at oratory, their intellect, whatever, or their money, power, or prestige. They miss it. They miss God because they think that they're above that. And then there's equally those helpless precious people who see themselves as only someone God could never love. And I think this is what Isaiah was getting at. You know, speak to the mountains, bring the mountains down and raise the valleys up so there'll be a broad terrain. Many in this valley will be mountains. Some of these messages, like this morning, will be difficult and tough because mountains have to be brought down. You're not above God, you're below God. You're created by God, you're not the creator of God. You are a creature. You have personhood but you are a creature. Those are hard to reconcile. I get it. You're both totally dependent as a creature, and yet you have personhood. You have the ability to make decisions. You're created in the image of God. Those seem incompatible. 
but in fact, they both are biblical. So if you miss it on the high side, that's the wrong place to miss it. But don't miss it on the low side. You're created in God's image, and he loves you. Embrace Jesus. Live into Jesus. Let Christ live in you. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's the creator of all things. Everything will be subject back to him. There is this momentary time called the church age or a dispensation of time in which God's mercy rules and reigns. But he will come back one day in judgment and make all things right. And that will make heaven heaven. Because if he didn't make everything right and he didn't make all things new, it would just be a continuation of earth 2.0. No thank you. So where are you in your walk? Do you believe God's sovereign? Do you believe, can you imagine that you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Let's close with this worship song. And then I'm going to ask, who will I like to ask? Brother Lazarus, our friend Lazarus. Would you mind coming up and closing everyone in prayer at the conclusion of this worship song? And I'm going to go out and meet everybody on the way out. Okay? We love you, Church of the Adore. Let's worship. Let's think about, this is called gravity. I love this song talks about God's sovereignty and him lifting us up and to be seated with him in heavenly places.